On a warm summer night, Gilles Fluet was walking toward his home in Lac-Megantic, Canada. It's a small town near Quebec's border with Maine. It was late on a Friday, technically a Saturday morning, and Gilles had just left the Musi Cafe, a popular venue downtown. Before leaving, I went on and greeted all the people that were still there, musicians and everybody. As he crossed a set of railroad tracks, Gilles felt a rush of air and turned to see a train fly by just a few feet behind him. I did not hear anything because there was no running engine, no braking sound, there were no lights, the security signals were not on, nothing to alert that a train was coming. Behind the lead locomotive were 72 tanker cars full of crude oil. There was no conductor, no engineer, no crew at all on the train. The runaway train roared down the steep slope toward the heart of town. There was a sharp curve in the track ahead. When it reached that curve, going about 60 miles per hour, it derailed, right beside the bar Gilles had just left. It was like an earthquake sound. It's hard to describe. It is a war noise. Within seconds, Gilles was staring into an inferno. There was an explosion. There was fire. Then another explosion followed. Through this, we could hear some people cry. People from the other side of the train that were yelling. Gilles says the largest explosion sent a mushroom cloud high into the sky. Buildings at the heart of town were catching on fire, one after another. The heat was so intense that my clothes on the explosion side got burned. I had the impression that all the city was going to go vanished. This is Points North, a show about the land, water, and inhabitants of the Upper Great Lakes. I'm Morgan Springer. Today, part two of our series on transporting crude oil. We're looking at times it's gone horribly wrong and what that has to do with Enbridge Line 5, a controversial pipeline running through the Upper Great Lakes. Last episode, we heard about an oil spill in the Kalamazoo River in Michigan. Now, the train derailment in Quebec. These tragedies have something in common, because both came from a failure to act and a lack of enforcement. Reporter Patrick Shea has the story, A Perfect Storm. Locomotive 5017 left the back and oil fields of North Dakota on June 30th, 2013, pulling a long line of tanker cars behind it. Its destination was the Irving Refinery in St. John, New Brunswick, more than 3,000 miles away. This procession of highly flammable fuels made its way through Minneapolis, Milwaukee, Chicago, and Detroit. It passed through southern Ontario and switched conductors just south of Montreal. That conductor guided the train to the town of Nantes, about seven miles away and 400 feet uphill from Lac Megantic. He gets there, he parks it, he goes to his place of rest. That's Bruce Campbell. He published a book about this rail disaster in 2018. Shortly after he leaves, there's a fire. 
The engine of the lead locomotive had burst into flames. The local fire department arrived on the scene between 11 and midnight. But in putting out the fire, they dismantle the independent brake on the locomotive. The conductor had set an air brake on the lead engine. Once the air runs out, the train starts to move. So it started to move about one o'clock at night. You've already heard a bit about what happened next. Oh, mon Dieu! Oh, mon Dieu! Oh, my God! 72 tanker cars loaded with crude oil broke loose and hurtled With just about everyone here wondering how many people they know have been lost. One person we spoke to this morning. The fires and explosions after that oil train derailed continued for two and a half days. The heart of downtown was incinerated. The Lac-Megantic rail disaster claimed 47 lives. Most of those people were inside the Musée Café that night, at the event Gilles had just left. These were families, friends, neighbors, musicians, members of a tight-knit community, a community that would never be the same. Robert Belfleur is a lifelong resident of this small Quebec town. Autrefois, les trains amenaient la vie dans les villes. In the past, the train used to bring life to the cities. It would bring wheat, the passengers, food, and all merchandises, but now, Things have changed a lot. Robert said this community was built around the railroad. His grandfather and both his uncles worked in that industry. Now the train brings mostly industrial products, dangerous products such as petroleum. Then the train no longer brings life, but death. Just a few months after the catastrophe, the tracks were repaired and long, heavy trains full of hazardous products started rumbling through town again. That didn't sit well with Robert. So he helped form a citizen coalition that advocates for stricter regulations on Canada's railways. They take it upon themselves to inspect the tracks regularly and report poor conditions. They petitioned to get a bypass built around the downtown area. And now they're working to make sure that bypass takes the safest possible route. Robert says their motive is simple. Why? So that this don't happen again. Because the problems related to railroad safety are constantly present in North America, either in Canada or the United States. Bruce Campbell, the author we heard from earlier, has researched these problems with railroad safety extensively. He's a political economist and former director of the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. After the Lac-Megantic rail disaster, Bruce wanted to know the true cause. He found that multiple railroad companies along that train's route had ignored a bunch of red flags. There weren't enough brakes being set, there were problems with the engine, the one that later caught fire, and the tracks were in very poor condition, which made the trip take longer and made the conductor fatigued. I mean, the, the deck was really stacked against him. Given, given what was happening all along that route that day, he's exhausted, he's working on his day off. And working alone. Single-person crews didn't used to be allowed. But Bruce says lobbyists with the railroad industry successfully changed that about a year before the disaster. MMA was at the forefront of wanting that. It was allowed to do it in Maine. MMA as in Montreal, Maine, and Atlantic Railway. And it wanted to have permission to do that in Canada. That was a huge factor in the disaster, and we can talk about that. Bruce points to a lot of huge factors in his book. Systemic issues. And many of them are similar to the single-person crew issue a relaxing of the rules over time. 
And then there's the issue with the tanker cars holding the oil. The model is called a DOT-111. They were created to, to haul things like corn oil, but not volatile products. The steel on these cars, it's pretty thin, easily punctured, which means a higher risk of leaking and exploding. Federal transportation safety boards in the U.S. and in Canada had been warning for years that it was a bad idea to move hazardous products in these DOT-111s, which earned the nickname soda can cars. Those safety boards advocated for more heavy-duty train cars with thick steel jackets to prevent puncturing. But the regulators themselves, they didn't heed those warnings. You know, they just, uh, they just let it happen. Um, unfortunately, the transportation safety boards can recommend and warn, but they can't, they don't have the power to enforce. It was just a perfect storm of corporate negligence and regulatory failure that, uh, that produced this tragedy. That phrase, a perfect storm, it came up a lot when I interviewed people about the oil spill in the Kalamazoo River, too. The same kind of negligence and lack of action from regulators also played a role there. You might remember that Enbridge was aware of cracks in Line 6B for five years before the spill. That's because regulators had notified the company of those issues. But Enbridge didn't make repairs, and there was no follow-up, no enforcement. And when the rupture first happened, Enbridge ignored alarms and increased the pumping pressure. Now, you may have forgotten what this series is all about. We're looking at what these two catastrophes can tell us about Enbridge Line 5. Many people are afraid of a perfect storm in the Straits of Mackinac. I mean, the writing is on the wall that, you know, it's not a question of if, but when Line 5 ruptures. That's Liz Kirkwood, the director of an environmental nonprofit called For Love of Water, or Flow. Her group has been calling for a Line 5 shutdown since 2011. It doesn't make sense to, to expose one of the most globally unique freshwater bodies on this planet to an oil disaster. We know it's going to happen. Liz says her feeling of certainty about an impending spill comes from a series of warning signs. One of the most significant was when a boat's anchor struck the pipelines on April Fool's Day, 2018. It damaged the pipeline, but no oil is known to have spilled. It was this wake-up call, and April, it turns out, could be one of really the worst times for a pipeline disaster because this is the time of year where there are ice flows and any kind of cleanup recovery effort is extremely, extremely difficult. About two years later, there was another close call. A ship dragged a cable over the pipeline and caused more damage. That prompted Michigan's attorney general to order an emergency shutdown, which lasted two months as repairs were made. Last episode, we heard about how Enbridge, the company that owns Line 5, is now watching closely for ships that might be dragging objects along the bottom of the straits. But Liz says that's not enough. Why would you risk it? That's, that's what we're looking at, that the harm is so great, it causes any risk analysis to say this piece of infrastructure is too risky to continue operation. Liz's organization, Flow, commissioned a researcher with Michigan State University to study what the economic impact of a spill might be. 
That study estimated about $45 billion in losses. That includes drinking water and natural resource damage, as well as impacts to industries like tourism, shipping, and fisheries. Oil by pipeline has its own risks. So how can companies safely deliver crude oil across the continent? Enbridge says if Line 5 were to shut down, it would take 800 rail cars per day to move the same amount of oil and natural gas liquids. The company says Line 5 is safer than that. And statistically, they're right. Pipelines are safer than oil by rail. In Canada, for example, since the Lac-Mégantic disaster, at least seven more trains carrying oil have derailed and exploded. Luckily, those weren't near population centers. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has pointed to those incidents as a reason to keep pipelines open. The fact is, we know that oil in rail, rail cars is more expensive, more polluting, <coughs> and most importantly, more dangerous for Canadians and for our communities. Canadian officials applied that thinking to Line 5 last week at a U.S. Senate hearing. Canada's Minister of Natural Resources, Jonathan Wilkinson, said shutting down Line 5 would be a bad move. There's no point in going backwards here in terms of energy security. This, that would be a step backwards. No one seemed to push back on that. But U.S. Senator Joe Manchin did address the fact that there are environmental concerns. He asked Wilkinson about the pipeline's safety record. Has that pipeline ever had, have we ever had a leak or problem with that pipeline? Did you, not, any, not to my knowledge, not, to not anything knowledge? significant. Not for, to my for, six, for six decades, correct? History says otherwise. Over a million gallons of oil have spilled from Line 5. It wasn't one big spill, but at least 33 incidents since 1968, according to federal records. In 1999, there were multiple explosions near Crystal Falls, Michigan, after natural gas liquids leaked from Line 5. That fire burned for 36 hours. These could be warning signs, but they weren't brought before Congress last week. Liz Kirkwood with Flow says it doesn't have to be either or. It doesn't have to be the Line 5 pipeline or a surge in oil by rail. I don't see it in those black and white terms because some of the volume of the hazardous liquids would be transported in the additional capacity of current pipelines that have been expanded. There are pipelines that start and end at the same refineries Line 5 does. Enbridge has increased the amount of crude oil they transport through some existing pipelines, and some of them have the capacity to transport more. So there is a way to get that product from point A to point B without Line 5 or 800 rail cars. It just might mean a cut to the company's profits. Enbridge also is coming to this with the expectation that they get to transport 540,000 barrels per day. The amount Line 5 moves right now. Enbridge, you know, tries to win the argument by, by always saying, okay, well, if you don't have it in, in pipelines, then you're going to have these other modes of transportation that are much more dangerous. But that kind of argument is, is really a straw man. Robert Bellefleur saw the danger of rail firsthand in Lac Mégantic. He doesn't think people should have to choose between pipelines and oil trains at all. Écoutez, que l'on parle du transport du pétrole par train ou par pipeline, les deux sont dangereux. Listen. Oil transportation may be through train or through pipelines. Both are dangerous. Both of them are not built in a safe way to avoid leaks. And the old pipelines built in 1953, the line number five is no good now. 
Écoutez, euh, ça ne tient plus, là. We understand uh, why uh, your governor is just wondering about that, you know. Gilbert Carat is another member of Robert's Coalition for Rail Safety in Lac Megantic. Gilbert and Robert both say the danger of transporting oil is a good reason to speed up a transition to renewable energy. The way the, the world is going, you know, you're going to get killed by the climate change or by <laughs> the train? Trans transportation <laughs> catastrophe, pipeline bursts or trains derailing. We have to, uh, to go in another way and find some other source of energy, you know. Canada and the U.S. have both set ambitious goals for carbon neutrality by 2050. But goals don't guarantee action. The fate of the Line 5 pipeline is in limbo, for now. Michigan's efforts to shut it down are stalled in court. Enbridge has proposed relocating it in a tunnel underneath the straits. That project is still at least six years away, if everything goes smoothly. So there could be a shutdown, there could be a tunnel. Until then, there could be a perfect storm. Reporter Patrick Shea. Coming up next time, the tension between two treaties that could decide the fate of Line 5. And that's why I call on the United States government to join Canada in demanding that the governor of Michigan respect the 1977 Pipeline Transit Treaty by abandoning her efforts. Treaties, you know, when our ancestors signed those, they were exchanges. In exchange for this land and water, this right would continue to exist forever. That's part three of our series on Points North. Today's episode was written and produced by Patrick Shea. It was edited by me, Morgan Springer. Additional editing help from Peter Payette and Taylor Wisner. Music by Poddington Bear and Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to Roger Polidor and Gilbert Carrette for French to English translations. To hear more environmental stories from the Upper Great Lakes, go to pointsnorthradio.org, or you can subscribe to Points North wherever you get your podcasts. Also, while you're at it, please rate and review the show. It helps make more stories like this possible. And have a great weekend. Thanks. <laughs>